You know, as I was sitting there, first of all, let me introduce myself. I'm Brandon. For those of you who don't know me, sorry. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at, at First Church. Um, and I don't know, as I'm sitting there today, I'm, all of a sudden I started to feel a little bit anxious, a little bit of unrest. I'm not really sure what that is yet. Uh, so I'm just going to pray real quick, and I'd ask if you would pray with me, and then, and then we'll jump in. Father, we are here today to hear from you. And, uh, and I believe this week that you have been uh, preparing uh, me for this. Um, but ultimately, uh, what we want more than anything is to hear what you have for us. Uh, and so if there are, uh, if there are words that uh, need to be said, may they be said. If there are words that don't need to be said, may they not be said. And ultimately, may everything that is said today run through the filter of your spirit. May your, your spirit be the filter between my mouth and our hearts. And, uh, and we're going to trust you. We're going to trust you with whatever it is you have for us today. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to welcome you here today, if you are a guest, uh, and just tell you that my hope is that by the time you leave here, uh, that you have not only felt welcome, but you have felt loved, and you have felt encouraged as well. Uh, if you are, whether you're a guest or you're a regular who's missed a couple weeks, I want to encourage you uh, to kind of go back and take a look, uh, take a listen to our podcast over the last couple of weeks. You're coming in a little bit to an ongoing conversation, and so you can find that on the iTunes Store, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, web, our website, pretty much uh, anywhere you want to find it. Um, but that will help you catch up a little bit. We're in week three of our series called Peculiar. Tim, this is for you, wherever you are, buddy. Uh, say it with me. Peculiar. All right, we're getting pretty good at that. Uh, we spent, you know, real, real quick, I live with someone who is like, I just don't want to participate in a service, right? I won't say who it is, right? But uh, <laughs> when it comes time to do the repeating parts, it's just like, uh. so anyways. Tim, I'm glad that you love it, though. Uh, we spent the last couple weeks uh, reflecting uh, on Jesus' words about heaven um, and their meaning for our lives, right? And the key thought for our series so far has been this, what if heaven is not a destination to await, but a reality to pursue? And in week one, we took some time to figure out what Jesus meant when he said that the kingdom of God is here. In doing so, Jesus declared the he kingdom of heaven to be here partially, but, but not entirely, already, but not yet, both, both here and there. And he spent a lot of time telling people what life in heaven is like so as to encourage them to pursue that kind of reality on earth as it is in heaven. And in short, uh, we said last week, uh, Jesus basically said, practice like you're going to play someday. And so that idea served as the foundation for our second week in which we unpacked the concept of heavenly justice. What if, the question went, True justice is found in love, not through retaliation. Jesus' model of justice was neither passive nor aggressive. Uh, instead, um, we pursue a justice that, that causes the oppressor, the person who has wronged us, to come face to face with the reality that they have insulted us, that they have treated us as less than human, that they have robbed us of our dignity. And Jesus challenged his followers to, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, creating space for enemy to become brother as we learn his or her story. And so that brings us to today where we will continue investigating how Jesus calls us to be peculiar people, people who pursue heaven on earth uh, today through compassion. A couple of weeks ago, I gave everyone an assignment to read the Sermon on the Mount, and many of you did, which I was thrilled by. Um, today, we're going to be hanging out there again for a little bit, so if you want to open your Bibles, get out your phones, turn to Matthew chapter 6, uh, that's where we're going to be starting today. 
And as you're turning there, just to give you a little bit of background, in the lead up to this passage, Jesus has been talking uh, to his listeners about um, just kind of warning them not to, not to practice their spiritual disciplines, whether it's prayer or fasting or giving, in such a way as to bring attention and glory uh, to themselves, uh, but instead to do so in a way where they're, they will be rewarded in secret by their Father. And, and really what he's getting at in all of that is this idea that our heart uh, the posture of our heart is what's most important. And that's the thread that weaves throughout uh, this entire sermon and uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And that's where, um, really where we're going to be today. So we're going to pick up Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. And here's what he has to say. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus says that where your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he's drawing a clear distinction here, a little bit earlier on in the verse, between earthly treasures and heavenly treasures. Earthly treasures, he says, have no eternal value. Time is eventually going to break them down. You don't get to take them with you when you die. They stay here. And he goes on to give three specific examples, and I'm not real concerned about the examples, although I will just point this out. Um, he talks about where moth destroys, right? He's talking about clothing. He talks about where rust destroys, and it's weird. Um, for some reason, that, that word is never translated rust there anywhere else in Scripture except just in this one place. Everywhere else it talks about this idea of kind of eating away, and it's this image of you have this store of corn, you have this store of grain, and you have pests coming in to eat, it, eat away at it or to spoil it. And so what he's really probably getting at is food, right? Uh, and then he says where thieves break in and steal, and he's talking about money. So, food, so clothes, food, and money. To me, those don't sound like treasures. Those sounds like necessities, right? Um, but, but he goes on and he kind of talks about all three of those um, just after this. But, but before he does so, he injects this statement uh, that kind of gets right at us. He says, what we treasure tells us about where our heart is tuned. In the Jewish mindset, uh, the heart was considered the seat of intelligence and will. In other words, our will, the choices that we make, the actions that we take, uh, they're shaped by what we cherish most. What you value, what you pursue, what you will sacrifice for is an outflow of your heart. It tells you what's most important to you. And Jesus takes that a step further then, and he says what's important to you indicates where your heart is. He uses the word where because he's making a clear distinction between these two realms again, this heavenly realm and this earthly realm. You've heard the statement, home is where the heart is, right? Maybe some of you have that home uh, hanging in your home. And that's pretty much what Jesus is saying, but he's, he's saying home is where your heart is, but your heart is where your treasure is. There are earthly treasures, there are heavenly treasures. And he is pretty clear as to where he wants ours to be. He wants our hearts tuned toward heaven. So the question then, uh, pretty naturally, is what is heavenly treasure? If heaven is where God's will is done, then what is it that God cherishes. As Nazarenes, we say that we are a Christian people and a holiness people. And, and I would say, isn't holiness very much just having our heart aligned with God's heart, being brought more and more in line with who he is, having his heart, having our heart broken by the things that break his? What does God cherish? There's this story I love from early church history, and uh, we have a church history professor in our midst, so Mark, you can correct me later if I have any of these details wrong. Uh, but it takes place in AD 258, and the emperor uh, of Rome at the time, Valerian, issued this edict 
um, commanding that all Christian bishops and priests and deacons be put to death. And he gave the imperial treasury the power to confiscate all of the money and possessions from the Christians. Now, Pope uh, Sixtus II, uh, sensing that his days were numbered, uh, went ahead and named, named a Spanish theologian named Lawrence, Archdeacon of Rome. And, and when he did that, he put him in charge of all of the church's treasures, riches, uh, but he also put him in charge of outreach to the poor. And so after the Pope was beheaded, uh, Lawrence was confronted by this Roman prefect, and he said, give me all, of, all the treasures. I want you to turn over all the church's riches to me. And so Lawrence, in return, asked for uh, several days to just kind of gather those up. Well, in that intervening time, he took all of that, and he sold it, and he gave all the money to the widows and to the sick. And when he arrived at the palace a few days later um, to, uh, and, and came face-to-face with the Roman prefect, the Roman prefect asked him, where, uh, where are the treasures? And, uh, and St. Lawrence stopped, and he turned around, and he motioned to the streams of the sick and the poor and the widows and the blind and the crippled who were coming in behind him. And he said, these are the treasures of the church. And one account even has him adding, the church is truly rich, far richer than your emperor. These are the riches of the church. I think St. Lawrence was probably on to something there. When you navigate Scripture, there are, there are a few distinct groups that God comes back to and repeatedly mentions all throughout Scripture. He mentions the widows, the orphans, the sojourners, and the poor. He often makes special mention or special provision for them so that they'll be taken care of. And it's clear that these groups are at the very center of God's heart. What do they have in common? Most of the time, they don't have much of a voice for themselves. Neither do I right now for some reason. Uh, they, uh, they, are, they are desperate. They have no one to fight for them, no one to advocate on their behalf. And God seems to be drawn to people like that. Jesus certainly was, and, uh, and after all, he is God. Uh, there's this other famous passage uh, where, where we kind of get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus, and, and we're going to read that today. It's, it's a parable found in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, and I'll just tell you, it is perhaps of all of the, I mean, Jesus says some vexing, confusing things sometimes, but this one, this passage of all the things that Jesus says to me is the most unnerving. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25. It'll be on the screen. It's kind of a long one, so you may just want to follow on up there. But we'll start in verse 31, and here's what Jesus says. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those who are on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my, by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? 
And then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus is describing these two alternate future destinies, using this imagery of sheep and goats. And that imagery would have been very familiar to a first century Palestinian Jew. Uh, the, The shepherds bring the flocks in at the night, and they separate the sheep into this pen and the goats into this pen, right? And so Jesus is is leaning on that imagery to talk about this future judgment. And in the story, the ultimate destination for each person really just boiled down to one very simple thing, and that was this. How did they treat Jesus? what he referred to as the least of these, my brothers. The hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, the stranger. Once again, people who are desperate, people who have no voice for themselves, people who can't fight for themselves. What's interesting to me is that in this passage, neither group, those who are considered the sheep or those who are considered the goats, realized what they were doing. Uh, Both groups respond to Jesus by saying, when did that happen? Jesus identifies with these groups of people by saying that what they've done for them, they did for him. He says, I am they. Now, this passage is really difficult for me to wrap my mind around uh, because it creates some tension for me. How do we reconcile Jesus' words here, this sorting process of the sheep and the goats, which is centered squarely on the individual's response to the needy and the desperate, with Paul's teaching of grace through faith alone? What do we do when this passage seems to butt heads with the idea that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? After all, these words are coming directly from Jesus himself. They're some of the very last words in his public ministry. Of all the things that he could have said just before he was led away uh, to to be crucified, before he was betrayed, uh, this is what he chose to say. And so clearly it was important to him, and, and we probably need to take note. And it's not the only time he says something like this. A little bit after the passage that we just read before from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. What are we supposed to do with that? Our inclination, I think, many times is to try and sanitize these statements as hyperbole, as something that's meant to be exaggerated. Um, And who knows? There there may be some hyperbole there. I'm I'm not saying that there's definitely not But uh, regardless, um, with the weight that Jesus puts on it, it's not something I want to be wrong about, you know? The leaders of the early church had lived with Jesus. They had seen him. They had understood his heart. And and they took his words and they ran with them. When he ascended to heaven, he left them with a commission, go and share the gospel with the world. And they understood that imperative to include taking care of, of those who couldn't take care of themselves. And so when you read the book of Acts, it's, it's pretty incredible. Um, they did all sorts of things. They did take care of widows, and sometimes that caused them some real headaches. Um, but they felt like that is exactly what Jesus wanted them to do, so they pushed through. They took care of orphans. Um, the early church, sometimes uh, people had questions about these Christians. Uh, they heard of these love feasts that they would have. They weren't really sure what that was all about. And, uh, and they knew that there were times where they would just come and like, take these orphans off the street, right? And so some people's minds went immediately to, well, they must be like cannibals or... Uh, They must be sacrificing these children, right? The idea that these people would just simply be taking these orphans off the street uh, to give them a life, to give them dignity, apparently that uh, that was unbelievable. But they did. They took care of the orphans. And then you have that response, the response of all of those present, I shouldn't say all of those, of those present at Pentecost. Thousands of people are in town, 
for this Jewish festival, this Jewish feast, right? Um, and, and they become followers of Jesus after they hear this message of, of the apostles talking about this Jesus who is crucified and has now been risen. And, and so what did they do next? They all stuck around and they threw their stuff in a giant pile and they said, everyone should take what he or she needs. They surrendered everything they had for the sake of the other. That sounds like the pursuit of heavenly treasure to me. James gets at this very idea in his own letter uh, when he says this. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What do we do with all this? Now, I want to be clear. I want to say this as clearly, clearly as I can. I believe that we are saved by grace, through faith alone, not by works. I'm so thankful for the songs. That we, I wrote down some of the lines of the songs we sang today, that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness, right? What a sacrifice that saved my life. Oh, the lamb who takes away my sin. I believe that we are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ and that only. But I also just can't ignore these words of Jesus entirely. His words are challenging because they force us to, to ask this question. What if, what if Jesus is more concerned with how we live than what we believe? I'm not making a defin definitive statement. It's a question. I'm just asking the question in light, of, in light of his words. What if he cares more about how we live than what we believe? He spent a lot of time talking about it. He spent a lot of time talking about how we should live. I mean, he spent, he, he spent a lot of his breath talking about and making clear to his followers what heaven was all about and calling them to live into that, right? He said, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And he said, whatever you did the least for the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. He doesn't say anything to the sheep and the goats about what they thought. He just has to say something about how they responded. And when I read Jesus' words, um, that what we do to the least of these, we do to him, it makes me wonder, how many times have I missed Jesus? How many times have I ignored Jesus um, when he was right in the room with me? How many times have I been too busy to visit a friend who was sick or someone who was in prison? How many times have I pretended not to see the person asking for money? How many times have I justified in myself not giving to someone because of what their intentions might have been with what I would give them? How many times? I don't know what the answer for you is, but for me it's far too many, right? And sometimes what it takes uh, is the example of someone else to help you see what's right in front of you. I'm not sure if Joe is here today, but Joe Sigma, I'm about to tell a story about you. Um, a few years ago, um, I took a group of students to Chicago for a day. It was probably a week, week and a half before Christmas, something like that. And, uh, you know, the goal was to go up there to have a good time, shop, um, have some good food, just kind of spend some time together. And, uh, and Joe, uh, who has an incredible heart, decided he was going to bring a bag with him full of extra gloves and hats and scarves. And that if we saw anybody along the way that needed something like that, he was going to pass them out. So we get on the train, we head up to Chicago, we get off the train, everybody's hungry, it's lunchtime. We start heading down Michigan Avenue, and we get, uh, we get to the bridge, we're about to cross over the bridge. And, we're, and we, we walk past this man who's sitting in a wheelchair, and he's got a sign. Uh, he's just kind of talking to people as they walk by. And we probably went about 20 yards beyond him, and then Joe said, wait, wait, hold on. And so we went back to the man, and he said, hey, I've got these gloves. 
I've got this really nice scarf. I've got, I've got this hat. Is there anything here that you could use? Um, I just would really love to give you something if you could use it. And that very act um, ended up leading to this. For the next hour, uh, me and five or six guys stood there and talked to Anthony. What was his name? He went by Rabbit. Um, Anthony. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure there's a story behind that. Um, we stood in the freezing cold with Anthony, who was freezing cold, and we just talked to him about his life. And he told us about his past, and he told us about the people he had met along the way, and he told us that he was a, he was a pastor. He wanted us to know that. And so after about an hour, I'm thinking uh, in, my, uh, in my practical mind, okay, these, these kids are freezing, and they're, and they're hungry, right? And I need to do something about this. Um, so I said, Anthony, uh, these guys here, they haven't eaten lunch yet. They're really hungry, um, and, and they, they need to get to lunch. Would you want to come to lunch with us? We could just continue this conversation. And, and he was like, yes. So we did. We pushed him all the way down Michigan Avenue to Water Tower. We went down to the food court, and we ate, uh, we ate lunch with Anthony. Uh, he ate ribs like it was his job. Um, <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> Seriously, smile on his face was huge. Um, but we, we sat, and we talked. And we got to know him, and we spent the next several hours with Anthony. We walked through the mall. Uh, we pushed him through the American Girl store, which is the highlight of my day, because he, he really wanted to, you know, to see how much these things cost, because he wanted to get his granddaughter one one day. And when he did see how much they cost, he about freaked out. Um, and uh, he was really bent out of shape that they have, you can get like health insurance for your dolls, because he's like, I can't even get health insurance here in America. We can get health insurance for a doll. So he was, he was, he was, uh, <laughs> he was a little out of sorts when we started going through the American Girl store. But uh, it was an incredible day. And, um, and when it got time for us uh, to get back on the train, um, there were a lot of tears shed on both sides because it was like, you know, there, something holy took place today. Uh, something incredible took place today, and it has to come to an end right now just necessarily because of circumstances. Um, but I'll never forget that day. And we were so close to missing that divine appointment. I am convinced, I'm convinced that day that we, we ran into Jesus in the form of Anthony. We had already walked by him. If it wasn't for Joe, we would have missed it. And thankfully on that day, we didn't. But how many other times do we miss it? How many other times are we too preoccupied, too busy, too skeptical, too self-righteous, unable to be bothered? The truth is that being skeptical, being too busy, being self-righteous, those things are normal. Those are, those are pretty, pretty standard responses, right? But Jesus doesn't call us to normal. Jesus calls us to be peculiar. He calls us to compassion, to take care of what he says is the least of these, my brothers, to have our heart tuned to his heart toward the will of his Father, toward living on earth as it is in heaven, where there will be none of that suffering. And so the question once more, and that's all it is, is a question, is what if Jesus is more concerned with how we live than what we believe? When I consider our experience in Chicago in light of that question, I feel pretty certain about one thing. Had we just kept walking right on past that divine appointment, I'm sure we'd have had a great day. Um, but I'm not sure that Jesus would have been watching in heaven saying, well, at least they believe the right things about me. I think he would have been disappointed. I think he would have been saddened um, to see one of his, his brothers, one of his own, uh, ignored. Whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers he says. How often do we miss them, those divine appointments? How often do we miss the Jesus looking back at us because we're too busy or too skeptical of his motives? 
you know, as a communicator, um, you're supposed to be able to help people take a passage like this and turn it into an application. And I think I could just give you anything and just say, hey, obviously we need to live as compassionate people. Um, we, need to, uh, we need to be taking care of those who are in need. Um, something you could take out of here and use. But, but what's interesting to me about this passage, I said it earlier, is even the sheep didn't know that they were taking care of Jesus himself when they did so, when they took care of the sick and the imprisoned and the hungry. It wasn't, it wasn't at the forefront of their minds. They weren't thinking, well, Jesus said this is him. In fact, they were surprised much later to find out that Jesus considered those actions as if they had been done to him directly. But in that moment, all they were doing was acting out of the outflow of their heart because our actions speak to what's in our hearts. Now, there are some things I do well, but changing hearts, that's not really my deal. If it were, mine wouldn't need as much work as it does. But I do want to give you something, some sort of tool, something you can walk out of here today and use. And so, so I'm going to leave you with a statement, or a question really, that, uh, that has been helpful to me, and I hope, I'm hopeful that it will be helpful to you as well. And full disclosure, I can't claim this as my own. Um, last, uh, last year I had an opportunity to go to a ministry conference where Andy Stanley was one of the speakers, and um, he delivered what was one of the most powerful and challenging messages I have ever heard to a group, uh, to a stadium full of ministry leaders. And, and the crux, the bottom line of his, of his whole message was very simply this. Um, the one simple question that he encouraged us to use in any and every situation we could to determine our response is this. What does love require of me in this situation? What does love require of me here right now? If we believe that God is love and that as Christians we are supposed to align our heart with his heart and allow him to do that work in us, then our actions should be motivated by love. If heaven is centered on love and we are being called to be a peculiar people who pursue heaven now, then it just makes sense that this question, uh, we'd be asking this question of ourselves at every chance we get. What does love require of me right here, right now? When we're too busy, too skeptical to be bothered by the Jesus looking back at us, what does love require of us? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we usually know the answer to that question. Not always. Sometimes it's a, sometimes it's a difficult answer. Sometimes we're not really sure. But I think more often than not, um, it's not really a mystery. But stopping to ask ourselves the question gives the Spirit just enough time it needs to be able to inspire us to move to action. And so then it's left for us at that point to do it. If, if in the end, Jesus is more concerned with how we lived than what we believed, we can do a whole lot worse than using that question as our guiding principle. If we can pursue what love requires of us throughout our lives, then I truly believe that we will be in hot pursuit of heaven and that God's will will be done right here as it is in heaven. We will find ourselves encountering Jesus much more often. We will begin to see heaven and earth begin to collide, and we will be storing up the treasure that Jesus talked about in heaven. What will love require of us this week? Next week, next week is Palm Sunday, and uh, we're going to be wrapping up this series by looking at the peculiar kingship of Jesus, and I'm really excited about that one. You will not want to miss that. But in the meantime, we're going to have an opportunity. I guarantee we'll have opportunities this week to respond to someone in love. Some of us may even be presented with the opportunities that Jesus spoke of to clothe or visit Jesus in the form of one of his brothers or sisters. What will love require of us, and what will we choose to do with it? I'm going to pray for us then 
and Josh is going to send us out. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, you very clearly have shown us how much your heart goes out to those who generally have no voice, have no one to advocate for them, who cannot, do not have the ability to just pull themselves out of their situations. You gave provision over and over throughout your word of how we're to treat uh, people in those situations. And, and Jesus, you modeled for us very clearly what that looks like. And we know that sometimes we miss the boat on that. We know that you are gracious. We know that you are forgiving. We know that you love us still. But in our pursuit of heaven, in our pursuit of wanting to live like you, to follow you as you called us to do, to follow you, we want to be right most of the time. We want to miss fewer and fewer opportunities. We want to be living into the compassion that you called us to. And so we first ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us for those times where we've missed it. Open the eyes of our heart, as we prayed earlier today, to be able to see the need, to be able to see you in the other, to live into heaven by responding to that need. To see people not as, as, as problems to be fixed, but as people to be loved. And as we do that, we know, we know that we are seeing the glimpse of heaven on earth, just like you promised in Revelation 21, that there will be no more tears, there will be no more sorrow, that we get to see glimpses of that today. So help us, Jesus. Help us to be people who live that way. And as we say, as we seek to live out your story in our community, would people come to know that the people of Kankakee First Church are people who live out of love? We ask all these things in your name. Amen.